Welcome everyone to another episode of Growing Design. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Russ Chapman. Russ is head of design at Oboto. I'm just going to let you introduce yourself for the audience. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Ed. Yeah, I'm I'm Ross. I'm head of design at Obodo. I'm also a ambassador for Butter and a community lead for the remote sprinters community. So um, yeah, I live and breathe design and um, just, just love being in that space. And thanks for having me. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Um, that's very cool. So yeah, I've seen you around the design sprint Slack group. I'm not very active there, but yeah. I've seen you post stuff every once in a while. Actually, one of the first episodes ever of this podcast was with Steph Crochon yeah. from Switzerland. I know Steph. Yeah, he yeah. organized the I today. Uh, really cool guy, very smart. Uh, so yeah, he was, I think, episode three or episode four, something like that. It was really cool talking to him. Would you mind telling me what do you do at Oboto? What, what is Oboto for those who don't know the company? Yeah, that's a great question. It, Oboto is a, a product design startup. The way that we work is is very much in a startup fashion. It isn't a agency that I've been familiar with in the past. We also help designers find projects and, and placements, but we're not a recruitment company. So it really is a meshing of what is happening with the internet right now. And it we're just in this intersection of we our model is working with contractors using MVP design um, models to get teams from idea to developer ready files in five weeks. But we also fulfill the need where a startup or scale-up just needs a quality product designer. And so we're able to, through community, creating content and providing support, we're able to qualify that these people are exactly what their LinkedIn profile says they are and fulfilling a need that goes way beyond just finding anyone for a uh, product design uh, opportunity. I also uh, am fortunate enough to uh, offer advice and facilitate workshops for some enterprise companies. And that is another growing part of our business. So yeah, it's always hard to describe what Obodo does. I hope I'm able to cover what I do there. And, and part of that is ensuring that we are doing the best work that we're able to and at a global level. So that that's really what my responsibility there is. So if I understand correctly, you are sort of the interface between companies that don't have a design team and you know these really talented designers, freelancers. Um, you kind of like create a team, hire the people or contract the people and then put together a team for a particular project. That's exactly it. We we create this A team where you may have a, a a startup that is going into the financial services space, and through our network, we're able to find a UI designer that may have worked at a previous financial institution. So they're not just buying design expertise; they're also buying domain expertise of what financial services look like what users expect from that. And so it really is a, a modern model to building a team. And, and to be honest, from my point of view, a, a quality product 
comes from a quality team. It is all about the people that are involved in that product design process. Uh, you can't, by committee, create something that is super valuable without having specialist um, creators within that. So yeah, that that's really how that model works. That's very interesting. So um, if you you are sort of like that um, union between businesses and designers, do you have a lot of people in-house, like full-time employees, or, or you're more like a smaller team? Yeah, our, our core team is quite small. Uh, the 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 areas are around talent, around uh, sales and design. Those those are really our, our three key areas and operations. I have uh, two extremely gifted design managers that work with me, and they work very much on ensuring that the there's project success. They're helping support the designer. In ensuring that they're uh, providing that um, quality experience, working with startups and scale-ups, and they're feeling confident in in their decisions, but they're also listening to the startup and scale-up because, for many of them, this is a brand new process. They're a, they're a new startup, never designed anything before, and so what I'm finding is that it's not just about creating a great product and providing that kind of developer ready file for them to continue with it's also educating those teams on what the design process is all about and what goes into great design and providing that in a way that is is done within a five week uh, uh, set of activities it, it's an extraordinary challenge to not just provide great uh design but also to to educate to share to answer questions and so i think what we do is entirely valuable and for me being a process nut i just love looking at how we do that and evaluating well what if we do this other thing in in the first week uh we prioritize on the friday does that need shifting up a bit and that that's really what i'm able to do at a kind of head level is is design the process of designing products. And I, I really like that. I obsess about systems and because systems give people confidence, but it also gives them constraints and a framework to fill with their um, problem-solving creativity. So um, that, that, that really enables me to um, continue designing a system for designing products. So you're not only creating the deliverables and executing the project, but you're also providing this newly formed company with the foundation of a design culture and how to go about future projects, whether they work with you or not. Yeah, we're, we're utterly bullish in whether we work with them or not. They, they can just decide to go ahead with, with what we work on over five weeks. They can work with us for, for five months if, if they really want. And the, the decision is more with the startup and scale up. I, I've experienced that in, in some situations, you know, third parties want to land and expand and they want to kind of suck everything that they can from, from a, a particular client. And I just don't think that's how the market works. So having that kind of menu of services that they can 
pick from and and work with us on, but we're not concerned about uh, client retention. It just ensures that they leave with a great product, but also a great design experience. I obsess over uh, net promoter score at the moment. And no doubt in six months time, that'll change. But to tell me that they had a great experience and a great product, or they didn't, gives me the fuel I need to look at how we do that, how we improve. And, you know, that that's really what, what I'm obsessed with. So for um, those of you listeners who are not familiar with the Net Promoter Score is a methodology in which you've probably seen it everywhere, really. I've seen it in airports, but you just ask uh, customers one single question, which is how likely you are to recommend us. And that is a proxy for how satisfied you are with the experience that you got by interacting with the business. And it's a, re- it's a great way to very quickly gauge how good um, or how satisfied your customers are with your business. Um, how do you go about asking businesses? Did you like at the end of the project directly just go and ask them, hey, how likely are you to recommend us? Or yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, I do it at the end. I also do it during uh, because I'm I, I'm always experimenting with with you know what what we can learn and if if I can learn it early on we can actually do something about it within that that project which benefits that team but more holistically you know being able to to see how we're performing and there's all kinds of crit- criteria that we could use but having that recommendation of word of mouth. Uh, on on a fairly old metric. I mean, NPS has been around for a long time. Yeah, uh, I I'm just really keen to use that. I ask other questions as well. You know, what was a great? You know, what were the high points of this um, engagement? What would you like to see improved? Um, you know, any any challenges? Those are the things that I I really am keen to learn from because. I think really I'm in the people business. I, I want to learn from people. I want to influence um, people to, to have a great kind of experience with us. And yeah, I, I, th- I think I think it's it's quite natural that people is, is, is the kind of focus on how to have a great experience between a, a product company and a startup or scale up. Yeah, do you mind if I ask, what does it look like? Like, do you send them like at a Google form, a Notion page? Do you just get on the phone with them? We uh, we do everything in workshops. So even from the the first uh, first time that we meet together, we have a a canvas to work through. And you know, even our um, head of sales uses a workshop to build the brief with the team together. So it is utterly not and you know i don't like being an order taker like we want this we want that and for some reason startups and scale ups have have been in this kind of situation where they feel like they need to provide a shopping list or requirements up front because you go shopping you you want to work out what you need and then you select it but design services is is quite different because you're you're investigating the problem space together. And really the success for us is collaborating with the team. Even though they're paying us, 
we can only ensure success that we collaborate together because after a certain number of weeks, it's all on them. Like they they finish with us or or they they continue with taking this developer ready file forwards. And so you have to collaborate because even on day one, you've started handing over the work because they they've got joint ownership. But there's benefits to that, that they're co-owning decisions. They're actually much more engaged in the decision-making uh, of, of that product. And that, that, from my experience, is the only way to work with a team. It's, it's not presenting the work, it's collaborating with the work. And I, I spend a lot of time working one-on-one with designers and, and sharing with them that they don't have to take needs, go away, do some work, and then come back. They also don't need to work with a team and say, oh, okay, well, maybe I can create three designs for you to pick from and and go away, make them, and come back. What I'm trying to do is, is rectify that situation and say, look, be open with them and, and as transparent as possible. Solve the problem together. It doesn't mean you're less of a designer. It actually means you're using a powerful force in being transparent and collaborative with a team. And and by the way, they will just be led by whichever direction you take them in. So just just be open and work together. They might be investing in us, but but we're investing time and ensuring that the success is with them as well. Um, so yeah, and, and those retrospective sessions, they are workshops. Because even when they are giving us NPS, they're giving us um, you know positives, giving us areas to work on. They're also rating the designers out of five stars. They're also rating uh, Abodo as as a place to get product design. So I, I use it, and we we do it the the week after because life moves pretty fast. They're usually into development or or something else, and um, you just need to keep that that kind of uh, frame of mind when you're trying to retro. So yeah, we, we we use workshops for everything. That's very interesting. So the actual feedback session is a workshop as well. And that kind of like makes me think that it puts the client or the customer in a position of feeling like they have ownership over the process. I've seen this happen in a lot of startups, and I think it's very it's a very dangerous behavior in which you just approach the design agency or the designer and say, "Hey, these are the fifteen things that we want. When are when can you come back to us with everything done?" And they expect the solution to be perfect. Um, there's a number of reasons why that doesn't work, but fundamentally is that what you have in mind of what's gonna work is not necessarily what the other person is going to understand if you just give them one list. Like there's so much loss in translation there. Whereas with the workshop, you are making them participate in the um, problem solving process. So they are giving you a lot of feedback, a lot of input, and then it's it paints a more, it paints with more colors. Whereas like the the laundry list is more of like black and white. It's like, I want this, can you do it? And then, you know, what is this? Like, how do we define this? What how, What is success for your business? Um, the other thing that makes it very dangerous is that you're shutting yourself from um, the experience of the designer 
who does this for a living. It's like it's helping you now, but it's worked with dozens of other, dozens of other companies in the past, and they solve these kind of problems on a daily basis. So by just telling them what to do, you are shooting yourself in the foot by not um, allowing yourself to learn and to let the designer use their experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I, I mentioned earlier, um, I have a team of design managers. They're they're not the ones that are kind of leading every process. They're they're there to enable the designer to communicate directly with the team in synchronous sessions and also prompt and motivate for asynchronous activity as well. And yeah, it's, it's a highly collaborative activity. And do you know what? It, it's not all, um, you know, all the way uh, super, super progressive and productive. In the first week, the, the teams do some initial research through empathizing with the user, looking at what the team want to complete. And actually at the end of the week, they prioritize in, in feature cards. Most of the time, teams discover, and the designer leads that, that process, but they discover that they're actually getting uh, fewer uh, features than they thought. Because they, they thought, we, we came here with these 15 features, and then through prioritization, you find that, okay, we can only focus on five. And what they don't know at that time, and that's why the design education is so important around that, is the five features is enough to start and it's enough to launch with. You have to follow it up with your second release, but it's enough to launch with if it's prioritized in a way that fulfills and, and helps users complete uh, their task. And to, to a team, that, that is news, that is big news to them. And I, I've even looked at this process and gone, oh, you know, how, how do we make this a great experience for, for the team? But actually, if you look at it for, like in a wider view, delivering little and often is how many startups and scale-ups do this. The difference between a big bank delivering code once a year to a challenger bank delivering code once a day, like that. That is the situation of the tech industry right now. So why wouldn't you follow that kind of um, uh, precedent? So it, it's it's education. It, it's through doing the best work that, that we are doing, but sharing some of those harsh truths about the industry with the team and, and giving them solutions around that. So yeah, it's um, it's it's. It's good work. It, it can take a team on a, a journey. Um, and that that's why I always look at that kind of retrospective and, and go, okay, were we did we stick to you know what we believe in? Were were we more flexible where we we should have brought in uh, some of those constraints? And um yeah, it's it's very much being as realistic and and purposeful as possible. Yeah, definitely. Um, speed of or rate of innovation triumphs um, perfection. 
So mm. that's one of the greatest advantages that um, the tech industry has over, let's say, established industries. Or in the case of fintech, these companies grow so fast because they're able to adapt so quickly. They're so nimble. Whereas the old bank is still trying to you know, work through these massive processes um, and paperwork, and probably still use paper, a lot of them, uh, mm-hmm. which makes them very slow. So everyone is always looking for what's new, like what's the best option. There's so many options out there. I'm going to go with the one that better adapts to what I need. So if you can't become the company that creates a very well-tailored solution to the customer, someone else is going to do it. You won't be able to survive. Yeah, and and do you know what the the innovation word that is the word used by many enterprises startups don't really use that word <laughs> from from what I understand and it's funny that when you do something innovative with an enterprise and you check in a few weeks afterwards saying oh you know did you create the team and and did you you know dissolve some of these silos they don't because they're often in the situation where they're being defensive over their own role and they can't provide the the kind of antidote or the the solution to innovation because they're being too protective and they're 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 comfortable over their own role and um greg larkin talks a lot about this um in in his book um this might get me fired and it it they they use innovation but when you actually fulfill project with them it is just another feature or it's an evolution of their existing model. Um, those moonshot innovations, uh, I find enterprises just find really difficult to deal with the impact afterwards. And you know, how does this fit in our business as usual? Well, it doesn't. Um, from what we've done in these few weeks, uh, it really is going to impact your strategy over the next few years. So, um, yeah, that that's that's really. You know, when when you say innovation, it, it makes me think of of who uses that word, and it, it seems to be enterprises. <laughs> yeah, but the big companies—they're too slow. They're too set in their own ways and of doing things. So they have too much baggage that they have to carry. So that's causing this trend that we see, where companies become more profitable with a smaller headcount. So all of these um, tech companies—they generate tons of revenue with you know a team of like a hundred people, three hundred people which is really fascinating because in the past, you sort of like the size of a company was calculated uh, in terms of headcount. And that would tell you how, how big or how successful a company is. <laughs> and with yeah. technology, you know, we have the potential to like replicate code and like digital delivery. All of that allows us to generate a ton of value for a lot of people with smaller and smaller teams. It, it's, it's true, like success with headcount doesn't make a lot of sense when you recognize technology and i'm i'm talking at a conference tomorrow and one of the the key questions was um you know how how do you communicate digital transformation to uh, managers and you know how do they instill this culture of of innovation through uh remote working or something like that and you know you you're what you're trying to do, and we recognize this in design thinking, when you say that, you're actually trying to put a solution in with the problem. And you, you can't do that. You can't say, how do we do this with X, Y, Z? It's more, do you need middle managers when you're looking at your business in the internet age? And 
the the challenge that I like to pose is if you were starting your company today with the internet, how different would it look like? And I think for many, it would look very different. But bear in mind, most larger companies, the people that work there, and it's always the people, uh, they haven't invented the process, the department, the objective, the even mission of the business. They've come into that role to fulfill a particular um, uh, job and they'll stay there a while and then they'll move on. So the the limit of ownership is is actually, you know, there, there's not much to, to help them really engage in things because ultimately they can walk away. So ha- having having that as a kind of recognized trait, yeah, I just like this idea of what does your business look like if you were going to invent it today with the internet? And I think it would involve fewer levels of management. I think, you know, where where you can replace something with technology, there is still a role to do, whether that's gathering insights like we, we do in user testing or, um, you know, doing something that, that adds the, the people in the process. But uh, it, it really depends on who is the decision maker and, and what their outlook on, on what great looks like and, and also what their past experiences look like. Most of what I see is uh, more of a nostalgic look behind them. So that's why you have this kind of draw to, oh, we must get back to the office because that has been what they've kind of done in the past, but also that's what they're their heroes did and what they're they're trying to fulfill was a, a mission. I think it's more um more interesting to to look at the the what I call the wild west of the internet. Like how how do we work with this amazing technology that we've just been given? Um, you know, some some of the conversations I see about Web3, about monetizing the internet, I do hope that it's for the betterment of of the community rather than trying to put paywalls on everything um because we've just been given this gift i've been able to create a career out of it so have you um so yeah it, it is a challenge and you just have to work with people and their their ideology rather than try to get them to to your point of view you have to recognize what motivates them and what their objections are and each person has an ind- individual one and and work with that rather than against it. What is your approach when you are tackling a new design problem? Let's say you got a new client. What are your steps to understand how better to serve them and to break down the problem that they have into something that can be solved through technology? Yeah, it's a great question. So the, the way we do that is we use a scoping workshop to build the brief with the client directly. Uh, we have some activities in that, a customer problem statement, what their product vision is, what they've done so far to, to try and solve the problem, and some of their assumptions, which of course need to be validated through uh, research and, and customer interviews. When we go through that, uh, we also then, the, the second workshop is an alignment call. And what that really is to do is to kill the project before it gets started. It's very easy to get very excitable about creating and 
bringing together your kind of needs, uh, accepting the the proposal and the the kind of budgetary constraints. But I feel like that alignment call before you start on day one, you before you start on that kickoff, is to really give a sense check and to try and bring the problems up before they appear. So, um, and and this is all part of educating the the team as to what they're going to be working on and what they're going to get at the end of the engagement. So they they go through this kind of checklist of. Do you, do you know that this is what we're working on? Do you know that the constraints are X, Y, Z? Do you know that while you might have 15 features, we're going to be focused on five, which means that we won't be focused on 10? And, and it's really that sense check and reminding them, and, and this is why I talk about um, working with people through through the, the lens of design, is because... You, you need a few goes of that for them to really understand what you're talking about, especially when we're talking through a, a kind of virtual workshop. And I really want those sessions to bring the problems up before they happen. So we, we agree when the daily stand-ups are going to be. And that is so much better done in that call than 10 emails working out who's got a, a gap in their calendar. Uh, we also talk about what roles are people playing? Who's the main stakeholder? Who's the lead developer that's going to carry on the work afterwards? And recognizing those roles, you can actually collaborate in the right way. So the person to add friction isn't going to be the person that's saying yes all the time. It's actually the key decision maker that you identified in that call. And then after that, if everything's good, and I would say 98% of um, clients go through that. There, there are, you know, that two percent that we realize that they were t- actually talking about something else, even though they kind of uh, engage with us through the workshops, or or something changes. You know, uh, startups run very fast. We then start with a kickoff, and you know, briefly, our our prize process is this uh, MVP design diary, which has some kind of inspiration from design sprints and behavioral um, uh, design and, and, and science and, and also um, innovation. But essentially, it goes through th- three phases. The first two weeks are around product design, solving the problem and creating a, a, a clickable prototype. Uh, the third week is user research. So user testing, validating that this solves the problem or invalidating. And then the last two weeks, and this is where things get a little um, unique with us, is we work on UI design and and handoff. So we really do fulfill the promise going from idea to developer-ready files. It's not like a design sprint where you would just end with a prototype that's been validated with users and then often throw the prototype away. We actually evolve the prototype into the UI design because most of the new features and, and products, there's no legacy there. You know, it's, it's something new. Um, so we're able to create, um, take in any any needs that they have and, um, and work together to, to hand everything back to them uh, at the end of week five. So it's a th- three kind of key phase process. We also have 
a number of specialists in there. Um, our user researcher only does that week. And we we make sure that it's a product of a Bodo rather than a individual uh, contractor, uh, which which makes it that the team together are solving the problem and um, making it a, a collaboration of the team. So it sounds like a very modular process in which mm. every week you follow sort of like this um, agenda and then you bring in characters and remove them depending on what is the task at hand. Yeah, that isn't without its, its problems. Like um, having someone learn everything they need to all the way through is is a benefit. And that's that's why we started using design managers in, in that process, because I I have yet to figure out how you retain the knowledge gathered from the client and and keep it like omnipresent. Like it, it's super hard to do that. You could document everything into like a notion page, but also no one's going to read that. So you still have to work with people and and having someone throughout is is just a, a way to, to answer that. Um, to ensure that continuity. It, it, exactly. And it's more for the client experience than the the, the benefit of, of the product because we, we capture everything in the workshop, but um, it's more for the client experience. You know, I, like I say, I, I obsess about feedback and, and they, they would say, oh, we keep on swapping with people. Why is that? And so I take that going, okay, we need someone as a long running thread throughout and then we just use the specialist where we need to. But also the thing I missed out is most of the activity is done asynchronously. Like we only get together for a 15 minute standup or a 45 minute critique uh, in the week. Most of the things are done asynchronously through Slack, through Loom video recordings. Um, and that's what I like about remote. The, the performance is based off the work that you do, not the kind of theatrics of doing it together. It's it's a heavily weighted asynchronous activity. Speaking of Slack and Loom, um, what is your favorite tool? Like the one tool where you like keep everything organized. Like, do you have any particular ones? Yeah, um, bizarrely, as a designer, my favorite right now is Airtable, and people laugh when I explain this. Um, but I came to Airtable really late, and it's not just a online spreadsheet for me it it is the the operating system of abodo right now so it has everything from project progress and um you know rating uh, our contractors all the way through to uh listing our kpis and our, our key numbers when you have a team and you're scaling up you need tools that perform for you than you trying to wrangle everything. And I want to be judged on performance. And so having Airtable uh, fulfill that, and to be honest, it's it's a database that you can put any front end on, whether that's through Stacker or Softer or just using the um, new interface builder. So yeah, bizarrely, this designer um, likes this online spreadsheet tool. <laughs> That's very cool. Um, <laughs> so everything that so wh why not? And and I'm generally curious why not using something like um, Notion, which apparently you also use. Like what what would mm -hmm. be like your like the one thing where Airtable shines over Notion for that that kind of work? 
It's a great question. My my friend uh, uses Notion to to run her business, uh, and and so Notion is is one. I think I think for us, Airtable came first. I'm also interested in how we can capitalize on the integrations on it. Uh, and I think I think Airtable's doing the the same as Notion. I think. N- I like using tools that are great at what they're doing. Notion for us is great at putting in our kind of key objectives, our 30, 60, 90 day plans. And uh, we use it to, when we're putting together um, talent to go to um, startups and scale ups and say, would you like to work with uh, John or uh, Amelia or Karen? Uh, we use Notion for that. So for me, I've actually been using Notion as a um, kind of a web tool where I don't want to spin up another Webflow page. Uh, so it's been really useful for that, and I have all my tasks in there. For Airtable, I feel like it helps you think about measuring an awful lot more. And I did actually prototype how we use Airtable in Notion before and significantly using the timeline view. And um, yeah, we we just swayed more towards Airtable. But I know teams uh, uh, like MetaLab they they got rid of a whole ton of products and just use Notion for that. So I'm also very fickle. I'll move to the the tool that does the best job for me. So um, ask me in a, in another six months, uh, it might be a completely different tech stack. <laughs> That's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. I never really like um, found Airtable to be useful for me. Um, I've used it in the past with a couple of teams, um, but uh, yeah, I sort of tend to gravitate for more like text-based um, tools. But yeah, it's very, it's very interesting to to hear that you can also like do that kind of work with, with Airtable and it works really great for you guys. What book, podcast, movie, video, character, uh, YouTuber, TikToker, has inspired you lately or ever? Lately, any interview with the founder and CEO of Rafa, which is my favorite brand being a cyclist, uh, that has had my attention. So I would be doing all the household chores at the weekend and just searching for every interview with uh, Simon Mottram as much as possible. And I'm trying to understand why I I really like listening to it. And, and to be honest, I've listened to pretty much every interview available that does make me feel a bit weird, actually. Um, but I'm just, I, I love the, the story, but also there, there's a growth area for me where I really like creating content and um, sharing as much as I know with um, the, the community. And Simon's always done it with style and I've always done it quite scrappy. <laughs> Like even even taking a, a selfie and sharing it on Instagram, I'm I'm doing some kind of weird face. Whereas he would look at something and, and direct it, and it would be aspirational as well as high quality. And I quite like that because I've never grown into that. Um, it's 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 usually for me just been, you know, to be my authentic self. I'm quite messy and, and scrappy, but I like listening to how he went from being a, uh, a a high value brand marketing consultant to creating his own high quality brand. And, you know, brand has been something that 
I, I've struggled with for a while, and I think through Simon's lens, I'm able to understand it more. Uh, so, yeah, I just love everything that um, he's talked about and what he's doing. And, you know, I, I buy into that company as just a, a fantastic um, example that I also love what they they do and sell as well. So, and, and a lot of what they call brand is is content creation. And a lot of what they did was disruptive. They started in e-commerce first and then went to retail stores and clubhouses. Um, and they've recently had, you know, big investment, but they're still being authentic to what they believe in. So I just see it as a case study of uh, what a successful business looks like. And um, yeah, as a designer, I'm I'm more interested in the design of businesses and how they manifest through products and services, uh, it's quite hard to kind of change that if you don't understand it. So yeah, that, that's where I'm currently listening. I started watching the Rafa Y video. Mm -hmm. He talks about the brand as if they're a bunch of people who like cycling and they just happen to make apparel and stuff for, for other people who cycle. So it's very interesting because it's inverted and it's kind of like everyone is like, Everyone knows Simon Sinek's why and like start with why and blah, blah, blah. But very few companies actually um, implement it in a way that feels so authentic, which is yeah. telling like, this is this is who we are. We love doing this. And then we want to like create a community where like we're bringing to the community our expertise in like making clothes or building whatever it is that they sell. Yeah, I, you know, it's, Simon says that he, he, created the the brand because you know what was available to him just felt lackluster and and didn't really wasn't representative of the sport he loved and it, it's funny because sometimes you you look at you know where's the gap in the market and as designers we we don't really we don't want to be the customer with the problem <laughs> but um you know when when you listen to him and how he explains the the origins of Rafa, he he said, you know, I wanted something for myself, and then over time found people that also wanted that as well. And I, when I listen to him, I don't know if it's luck, luck or judgment. Like, did he create the brand that he always wanted for himself, and then found others that love that too, or was he also canny enough to see that there there was a luxury market in cycling um but his why and and rafa's why is is about you know the 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 pursuit of making cycling the best sport in the world and it's very authentic when you hear him talk about it because he says you know the column inches given to football in in the uk and and worldwide compared to the column inches given to cycling um you know why is that and and cycling is so multifaceted uh and i i think he says you know f football football's just a game isn't it whereas he would talk about you can commute with cycling there's so many different sports within cycling but it's also a culture and and a, a belonging so um yeah yeah i like listening to that when i'm mowing the grass or taking out yeah, the bins. I, I like how he's so attuned to the aesthetics of the brand, I, I guess I didn't know that he his background is working with with um, luxury brands. I think so. 
um, he brought sort of like all of that aesthetic to his own brand. And he mentions that in that video, he, they've, they've produced more than 300 um, films for the brand, yeah. which I think is remarkable. It's like a brand that cares so much about uh, aesthetics. Uh, or like we're talking about like, you know, Apple kind of kind of strategy in which like they make you want their stuff because of all of this uh, aesthetic that surrounds what they do. Uh, I thought that was very, very interesting. And like the entire video, if you guys haven't seen it, I'll probably put it in the description. It's beautiful. It's like very well thought out photography, composition, colors. Um, the images are very impactful. There's this image in which there's this guy who probably cycle a bit too much and he's like putting his uh, his feet in like, a, um, what do you call those? To cool them off with water. And, and yeah, people sweating, people cycling under the rain is very inspirational. And I think mm-hmm. that's really what he's trying to accomplish to like communicate or share his passion with other people in the hopes that some people also feel the same passion for the sport. And, and you know, they, they create that connection between the brand, their products and their customers. Yeah. And, and if you bring that back to what we talked about earlier, it's about the people within the business like they are all obsessed or or starting to get obsessed about cycling and i know that they prioritize content and experiences um as well as selling products but i know that when when they would do some kind of videography or um or photos or or you know story writing they they would the 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 video makers would create something that that they would be proud of. It, it's videos for video lovers, and it's you know films for film lovers, and um, articles for you know people that love to read. And I, I'm sure it has a lot of their individual vision and, and ambition when they're you know doing a photo shoot or something like that. And it's quite similar to how how we see it at Bodo as well. You know, it, it's it's about the designer using you know, the, the constraints of, of what we want to achieve with this team, but it's really down to how they want to approach it. And, you know, I, I'm able to see certain skills and we, we you know, double um, down in, in those areas. And it, it's it's being able to work with the talents of the team. And I, I think, you know, I, I see that from successful companies. It, it's, it's about the team behind the product, and how great they are. Yeah, it's always about the team and what they bring and how they figure out problems together. I, I love I love that message. I really think that that's, that's true. I know that when we were talking about uh, film production and, um, and, and movies and whatnot, I know that you, you also worked as a, as a film producer, videographer. Do you mind mm-hmm. talking a, a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah. For anyone that's interested, yeah, I uh, I started life uh, more in video editing. Uh, I I was influenced by going to um, talking of Apple, going to the Apple Pro website and finding out all these amazing professionals using uh, Apple Macs to kind of do do their best work and it. The way, you know, again with Rafa, the way that they they shared that and, and created content around that um, was just hugely inspirational to me. So I started life when I um, moved to London as, as a videographer, as a video editor to a agency creating small downloadable videos for uh, 
2.5G phones. Uh, and uh, we had clients like uh, uh, Disney and um, Channel 4. So we would, I would create small little like 60 second videos from a whole episode of uh, the IT crowd or Lost or something like that. And um, over time, I always was interested by the internet uh, and, and always in my spare time created websites and, and did that kind of thing. Uh, and, and just one day it flipped. I was like, I was going crazy about having these two passions and really only being able to pursue one professionally. And so I made the flip and that, that forced me to get out of my comfort zone and to, to really start my learning quite late on, like nothing really from university I was able to use within uh, web design and, I, I learned through watching videos and and executing. That, that's really my trick. You know, I, I watch something and then I force myself to do it uh, either that day, that week, whatever. And I'll do this in other ways. I'll, I'll go to um, uh, a design sprint training boot camp in Copenhagen and do that, not because I need to learn how to run design sprints because I'd run 15 or 30 before, I went there to learn how to run a design sprint uh, training boot camp and what the experience is like for a participant. And the the next week, I ran my first boot camp in London. So I I like it's the the adventure and and playing the game of of developing a exciting career. And um, yeah, I, I started in video. I'm trying to get back to it. I always used Instagram as my kind of rehearsal space for getting into YouTube. And um, I tell myself I want to be an example to my children because I know at least one of them will want to be a YouTuber. And um, hopefully that's a goal for 2022. <laughs> Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> um, uh, yeah, that's very interesting, that cycle of learning and sharing, learning and sharing. I think we, you grow as an individual and you also get to like, uh, impact the life of everyone that learns from what you're sharing. Ross, it's been a huge pleasure talking to you this morning. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. If people want to connect with you, what's the best way for them to reach you? I'm on most things. I seem to spend a lot of time on LinkedIn having conversations with people I've never met. And um, yeah, they can find me there. Uh, I'm on Instagram and Twitter as well. And um, yeah, happy to just have a conversation and see if there's anything we agree or disagree on. That's always a, an interesting area of conversation. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm on most things, Ross Chapman. Definitely. All right. Thank you very much. And that's it for this episode, everyone. And uh, we'll see you on the next one. Thank you, Ross. Thank you, Ed. Loved it. Thank you.